All right. Welcome to another episode of Stuff You Should Know About IP. And uh, today we're really excited to talk uh, about some stories that we've been hearing um, about people who are working from home now during this, uh, this pandemic with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. And um, people are getting more creative, maybe innovative, coming up with new ideas while they're, you know, at home, but they're also working from home. And so this is sort of drawing attention to that boundary between work life and home life when you're working from home. And if you invent something, who owns it, right? So, um, so, so uh, Tom, you had a couple of stories that you wanted to share related to this question. And yeah. um, I thought they were really interesting. So, 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 so what, what these, are the, these are the unintended consequences of COVID. Well, I shouldn't say unintended consequences of COVID-19 because that gives the impression that COVID-19 is thinking about you know, why it's doing this, right? But if COVID-19 were a person, I'd say these are unintended consequences of COVID-19, which are IP issues that are coming up. And we're going to probably talk about a few IP issues today coming up because of COVID-19. So what's happening? People are staying at home, right? We're all required to stay in our homes now, which means people are working at home, which means a few things are happening. One is no commutes which means people have more time. Number two, the work home boundary is being created. It's being fuzzy. It's more fuzzy now, right? I was going to say it's being fuzzyized, but it's, it's becoming more fuzzy, right? It's being so, yeah, yeah. So, and, and people have more time and now they're home in the evenings. They can't go out doing stuff. So they're getting more creative. So I've had in the last week, three people come to me, not, face-to-face, -face, you know, we have to maintain our social distancing, so they're coming to me on Zoom meetings with questions about IP or potential IP from stuff they've created. And I'll give you a few examples without giving away their ideas. One friend of mine came to me with a new soap dish idea, right? So his big issue is his soap, because everyone's got soap now, right? Everybody's got bars of soap near all their sinks. So yeah, he yeah. has never had soap in a bar in his life, he said, next to a sink. And what does he discover? He discovers that since he's putting it in a soap dish, there's water on the bottom, and the bottom of the soap is getting really soft. His issue with this is not that it's gross when you pick it up, which by the way, it is. His issue is that he only has so much soap, and he and his family are washing their hands like 10 times a day, because as we know, COVID could get on your hands, but it doesn't get in you until you scratch your face or rub your eyes or something. So wash your hands 10 or 12 times a day. So he doesn't want to burn through all of his soap. So he, he's afraid he'll waste his soap too quickly if the water's eating away at it, right? So he invents in the last few weeks a new type of soap dish. And he actually shows me a prototype. And it's pretty cool. So I'm actually using one of his soap dishes now at my house but he wants me to write a patent application for him. But he has a question. After, is it potentially patentable, which I don't know because I didn't do a prior art search yet. But the question is, who owns it, right? Because there's the boundary, of course, between work and your home life is fuzzy now. And also, he never had time to create stuff before, so he never created anything. And he's wondering who owns it. And I'll give you another example. A friend of mine calls me 
because even though he's an IP guy, he's not a copyright IP guy. And he's writing a book on IP and he works for a company and he's in their IP department. And he bounces this idea off me and that is, who do you think owns this book that I'm going to be writing on a topic in IP? Because I'm in the IP department of a company. Right. So, and then the third guy comes to me, he's developing a new app. Same question, right? I'm home, I have more time, I'm not commuting for an hour each way anymore. The boundary's fuzzy. You know, who owns this stuff? So ultimately, I thought about a story in my own life. Back in 2000, I got funding for a company called IP.com. And after lengthy discussions with our venture partners, we had a document to sign. And all the employee or all the potential shareholders, there was going to be employee stock options, had to sign this. And one of my coworkers came to me and said, look, this doesn't seem fair. It says that the company owns all IP generated during my employment. And I said, yeah, of course. I mean, we're paying you. Why wouldn't we own it? And he said, well, what if it's unrelated? I'm a musician and I'm always creating stuff. You know, I'm writing songs, I'm playing music, and I'm also inventing musical instrument things. And we don't have anything to do with that, which we didn't. What about that? So we had a lengthy discussion with our VC about it and we agreed, yeah, this should be owned by the company. And since then, I've read a lot of employment agreements and they mostly all say if it's related to the business of the company. So my first question, as I always ask people when they come to me with IP ownership issues is show me the documents because the documents typically define the relationship or who owns the IP in the relationship. So in these cases, when I said, show me the documents, none of them had the documents, of course, right? Because who keeps those documents? Right. But they're all going to check with their HR department and get copies of their employment agreements that they signed and then they're going to send them to me and in all likelihood it will define who owns the soap dish who owns the book and who owns the app that these three people develop and i'm guessing that it will fall in favor of each of these innovators or creators because again most of these agreements typically say that the company owns it if it's related to the business of the company Interesting. Interesting. Now, what if it doesn't specify? What if it's not specific enough? Well, let's say one thing is it doesn't specify at all. Okay. Yeah. Let's say it doesn't say anything. It's silent on the issue of IP ownership. Then there's an issue for the company and it's much more, it's, it's much broader than a soap dish, a book and a, um, a mobile app. And it could be that and I forget which way it goes. I know that contractors, the rights automatically fall in favor of the contractor unless there's an agreement to the contrary. And I can't remember who owns it in the employment situation absent an agreement, but there's a law on that. So it'll go one way or the other if it's silent. But almost every agreement these days has information on who owns the IP. And in all likelihood, if it's just generally we own the IP, you'd still have a good case for, well, a soap dish has nothing to do with what we do, so I still own this. Right. But it would be more fuzzy then. I mean, if the company wanted to be really tough about it and the, and the agreement generally says we own all the IP that you create during your employment, they could you know, give you a hard time. But in all likelihood, you'd be okay in all three of those cases.
Right, right. Unless, of course, that someone was inventing something that was related to the business. Yeah, and you're going to suddenly have a soap dish and you're in the soap dish business. Right. Right? Yeah, then you are going to have a problem. Or if somebody was at home creating training videos and our training company would have a big, <laughs> would have a big problem with that. And our law firm might have to deal with that issue, right? <laughs> You're, only you so, could deliver so such a threat. IP a <laughs> right. No, no, I, I have no ambitions of creating any training videos. If I did, it would be like how to potty train your dog. By the way, I love your shirt, Ray. Can you show us the logo? Now, here's a funny thing, though. But look at this. That's bleach from bleach. cleaning all the surfaces in my house. Oh, like, the, and, like a, and you're like, using like your paranoid thing as the as the rag, yeah. right? I got bleach in a spray bottle, you know, like door handles, light switches, you know, right. once every few days, or if I go out, you know. Colson Law Group hoodies. Yeah. But I yeah, this, is, mop it up this is another unintended consequence of the COVID-19. Again, if the COVID-19 had any intentions. Right. But yeah, is ruining a perfectly good Colson Law Group hoodie. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I have um, I have a, um, some a comment that I read today on uh, on a LinkedIn post. I'll I won't mention who it was, but um, it was really interesting. There was a discussion going on on LinkedIn about the <clears throat> the coronavirus stimulus package and um, what some of the uh, the the challenges are that people in the intellectual property space specifically are facing. You know, there's a lot of people facing a lot of different challenges right now, um, but but um, but one of the suggestions that was brought up was um, that the USPTO would be able to help out by um, allowing no cost extensions for for statutory deadlines and and waiving those maintenance fee surcharges. And um, I don't really know what the sentence that I just said means, but I thought it was really interesting. So I I. <laughs> I sent it to you uh, earlier today, and I was just curious to know if you had a chance to look at that and what your thoughts were. So I did. And number one, I know the guy. I'm not going to mention his name because I don't know how he'd feel about that, but he's really bright, and um, it's a good idea. So here's what his idea is. I mean, I, I think it's a good idea. So here's his point. Um, what are people strapped for right now during this crisis? Cash, right? I mean, during any crisis, cash is king, and companies are trying to conserve as much as they can. Now, let's say that this crisis lasts for another, I don't know, four months. Could be four years, could be two months. I don't know, it could be a month. I have no idea, none of us do, or at least none of us regular people do. But let's say it's four months. Well, being able to conserve cash for four months could be good, right? And what he's saying is, there's a way the USPTO can help. And, and here's what he means. So he's saying no cost extensions up to the statutory deadline. When you are involved in patent prosecution, and patent prosecution is essentially the back and forth between the inventor, which means between the patent lawyer and the patent examiner on coverage with respect to your patentable idea. So the patent lawyer is trying to get his inventor as broad a coverage as possible. And the patent examiner is trying to make sure that the invention, the, the claims of the patent are no more broad than the prior art allows, right? So without getting into so much detail on what that means, essentially, there's back, there's back and forth. There's 
there's a response to, so the office, the patent office will give an office section, which might say your claims are too broad. You need to narrow them. And then the patent lawyer will submit a response to that office action. But there's all kinds of other office actions as well. In fact, patent prosecution is so much about office actions, back and forth between the lawyer and the patent office. But you get three months to respond to a patent office action with no fee. So if you respond in the first three months, there's no fee. But in month four, five, and or months four, five, and six, there are increasing fee amounts. So if you wait until the sixth month to respond, you're going to have a pretty big fee in your that you have to deal with. Mm -hmm. So one of John's ideas is why don't you let us respond up to six months with no fee extension or with no extension fees, right? Right. So we could keep cash in our pocket and keep prosecuting along with patent applications. Because in my experience, there's a lot of situations where people go beyond three months. And that's a big number overall for the USPTO. So I could see the USPTO's point of view, which is, hey, we need that money. And that's a big revenue source for us. But since it might only be a three or four month crisis that we're dealing with, those extensions could mean a lot to companies. Right. And then the second thing he asked about was the, um, I think it's the surcharges on maintenance fees, right? So basically what that means is this, I file a patent application and let's say, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm for, by the way, you see how I coughed into the crook of my elbow? Ooh, yeah, I think I right. touched my eye like three times. This yeah, out of, and normally it's like 30, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but anyway, so these, so normally, or if you get a patent issued, it's granted, you then every so often you have to pay maintenance fees. In the US, it's three and a half years, seven and a half years, and 11 and a half years. You have to pay maintenance fees. And if you don't pay your maintenance fees, your patent is basically expired. It's, it's unenforceable, right? Oh, really? And, and a lot of people do that. They might file their patent application, maybe pay the first maintenance fee, which is lower. The, the prices go up as you go. Three and a half is less than seven and a half, which is less than 11 and a half. And people will say, wow, I thought this had a lot of market potential when I prepared and filed my patent application and even during prosecution. But now that I've had it for a couple of years, I'm seeing it's just not useful to me. I'm not going to keep paying the maintenance fees. So you stop paying the maintenance fees and the patent expires, essentially. It's not enforceable anymore. But, but if you miss your three and a half year maintenance fee, you get a six month window or your seven and a half or your 11 and a half. There's a six month window in the US where you can still pay your maintenance fee and maintain the validity of your patent, but you just have to pay a fee. You have to pay a surcharge, right? Right, right. So what John's saying is, and this is an even more valuable idea, let us, let's waive that six month surcharge. Because what does that do for us? It enables us to wait six more months before we pay the maintenance fee, right? This crisis might only last for four or five months. And right, if that's right. the case, a six month extension and having to pay the maintenance fee is a lot, that could be a lot of money because don't forget these big companies, they might have 30 or 40 or 50 or 100 or 1,000 patents right. that they have to pay maintenance fees on at a particular period. Right. If they could hold off six months and not have to worry about a surcharge, that could save them a lot of money. Now, if they have to pay the surcharge, they'll just pay the fee on time. But if they could wait six more months before they have to pay the fee, to pay the fee they'll have to pay anyway, 
it could really help them through this crisis. So I like that idea more than the, the not paying fees for extensions of time on office actions. I only say that because you have one remedy to the first idea of not paying fees for extensions of time, and that is pay within the first three months, right? But if you can then hold off that as well. So even as I'm talking about it, I'm realizing how stupid what I just said is. <laughs> it really is stupid what I just said. Both ideas are good. Why? Because the first idea enables you not to have to pay. Oh, no. Take, let, me take, let me take that back. It wasn't a stupid idea. that I, It wasn't stupid what I just said. So you come here. I'm trying to like process this in real time. Yeah, it's so okay. You could, still pay, you could still file your office action within three months and not have to pay a fee. So you're really not pushing off any charges in that case. Unless, of course, you're not paying your patent lawyers and you want to hold off paying them for another three months, but then, of course, they're suffering. But um, so I really like the second idea better, which is just don't make us pay our maintenance fees for another six months and we won't have to pay an extension because then we can conserve cash for six more months. And again, six months might be the difference between during the crisis and the crisis being over. Right. Yeah, that 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 whole uh, concept. And thank you for explaining that so clearly. Um, but because that it, it made me realize two things. One, just on like an like an IP business implications um, uh, standpoint, um, you might f uh, file a patent that you're essentially just trying to create, I think, a patent fence. Right. Um, so you're trying to prevent your competitors from making something that you might have no intention of, of making, right? Um, or potentially, I don't know if that's exactly a patent fence, but um, you can do that. And then the, the, the business decision that you have to make is, are the, is the cost of main, main, maintaining, paying those maintenance fees uh, lower or higher than the cost of potentially having to compete with someone in the marketplace who is going to produce that product or if somehow their product might, you know, impede on the market for a similar product that I'm selling. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let me just stop you. Cause I don't want to spiral too far out of control. Okay. Yeah. So let me, let me explain what I mean. So you mentioned a term that I just have to explain because I don't want people to get confused about this, a patent fence. Okay. You don't file a patent to create a patent fence. And what I mean is, it's a highly inefficient way in terms of cost to create a patent fence. A patent fence is essentially this. You have a patent, okay? My main competitor, Ray, has a patent on something that's very broad. Let's say you have a chair patent, and your chair patent claims an apparatus for sitting comprised of a back, a seat, and one or more legs. Okay, a back, a seat, and one or more legs. That's a really broad patent, right? Now, you couldn't actually get that because that's already been out there for longer than be the beginning of time, right? But yeah. anyway, I don't know when the chairs were invented. But anyway, you couldn't get it. But let's say you could. And I'm in the business of chairs. That's a great patent. And you now dominate the patent industry because none of us can make chairs that have a back, a seat, and one or more legs without infringing your patent. But what we could do is create a patent fence around you. And that is, we fence your patent in. We 
create patents or chairs with foot rests and head rests and arm rests and wheels on the bottom and laser beams that shoot out of the armrests and all kinds of stuff which are features in chairs that your customers want to have. So, so a, a customer might say, well, look, I like your chair, Ray, but I really want the one that has the footrest and the headrest and the armrest and the laser beam that shoots out of the armrest. But I've created a patent fence, not by patenting those features necessarily, but by publishing those features. I could publish, or I'm sorry, okay, you know what? We're doing this in real time again, and I'm, I'm totally getting this backward. Let me try that again. I could patent those features and create a patent fence around you so that you have to license from me to get those features, right? Yeah. You, have to, you have to get those features from me with the license. So it's true that I can't sell your chair with a back, a seat, and four legs without getting a license for you, but you can't sell your chair with a footrest or a headrest without getting a license from me, right? So right. I've fenced your patent in. The, the way that you could protect your patent fence, the most cost-effective way to prevent a patent fence that you would have is publishing all around it, right? So if you have this great patent and you want to prevent me from patent fencing you, you could then publish all around it and prevent me from patenting at all. So that's really a patent fence is putting patents around your patent to prevent your patent from dominating my commercialization. The way you could prevent a patent fence is by publishing all around your core patents so that I can't get patents. So now let's get back to the topic, which is why would you pay maintenance fees? The only way, reason you'd pay a maintenance fee is if you felt that um, you could get a patent to patent fence someone else's patent, right? And you probably want to pay your maintenance fee in that case. But if you're just getting, getting patents to protect your own patent, you'd probably just publish instead so right. that you can prevent people from getting patents. And then you probably wouldn't get a patent in the first place. But oh, okay. Now I see how that's different than, than what I said. Now, now I understand. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so if you, were, if you were trying to fence someone else in, you might- it's valuable. Patent. But right. if you're trying to protect yourself, you'd publish because yeah. why would you patent if you already have the patent? Because right. they can't make- the stuff that you're publishing on anyway, because you have the patent. Exactly. You've okay. basically salted yeah. the earth, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's around the, your patent. Yeah, yeah, the scorched earth uh, mentality. Scorched earth all around your patent. So then you keep the dominant positioning and nobody can patent fence you in, you know? Right. Yeah, okay. That's, that's really interesting. It's just that it's something that popped in my head when we were talking about this. So, um, okay. So there's another um, topic that I wanted to bring up um, lots of COVID-19, um, you know, implications in intellectual property. And um, so I have another one that we were talking about uh, uh, over the weekend, and that is uh, this Defense Production Act that um, the, the, the White House has, um, you know, the executive branch has, has um, you know, instituted or reinstated or, um, and, and essentially, as far as I know it, is that that, that uh, allows the president to um, to essentially uh, uh, encourage uh, or or even um, force companies to produce products that are needed for for national defense or for 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 national safety, right? Um, right, right. So, and I, yeah. The I question that. was the question was uh, who owns the IP then? You know, if 
if Ford is making ventilators, you know, they don't really make ventilators as far as I know, but I mean, you know, they sure they can make anything if they really wanted to. Right. Uh, we're told to. So, uh, by the government. So, so, but then in that case, then who owns the IP in that? Um, so I was just, I it was just a curious question that I had. And I don't know if you, if you had much chance to look into it or not, but. Well, so here's what I did in advance of this call about three minutes ago, I printed out something on the defense, this product defense production act. Hmm. I'm not even sure if I'm saying it right. I know very little about it, but let me tell you, let's just do a quick background. Okay. So here's what I came up with. It does three things, essentially. There's three main sections. One is called priorities and allocations, which allow the president to require corporations to accept and prioritize contracts for services and materials deemed necessary to aid U.S. national defense. That's one relevant part. The second one is called expansion of productive capacity and supply, which gives the president the authority to create incentives for industry to produce critical materials, okay? <clears throat> so essentially, so those two provisions, apparently what they could do is, if you have a bunch of contracts lined up, the, the president can order you to reprioritize those to do stuff, to make stuff that we need to protect ourselves, like masks and ventilators and things like that. Or they could, they could incentivize you to produce stuff that you might not otherwise produce, like you said. Ford makes cars and maybe a bunch of other things, but I don't think they make ventilators, but maybe they could. So now your question is, who owns the IP? So the first question, or the first part is, it presumes that IP is created. So let's say that the president tells Ford to make ventilators. And again, I don't know much about the Defense Production Act. Let's assume that's what the president can do, based upon what I just read. If they tell them to make ventilators, what's the likelihood that they are going to spend a year or two in research and development to come up with a new way to make ventilators in time to right, you know right. stop the emergency. Yeah, so true. in all likelihood, they're gonna be they're gonna have specifications that are either in the public or they're gonna get some kind of a non-exclusive license from some other company that's making ventilators. So first, maybe it's not likely that these companies would be innovating and creating IP in connection with production. But let's say that somebody does. They're very smart and they, and they either stumble upon or, or come up with a more effective way of pro- their manufacturing process of ventilators or a better ventilator or a new feature or function that is patentable. So the question is who owns it, right? So things that come to mind are, I'll bet you there's nothing in the Defense Production Act that defines ownership rights. I'm just betting that's the case. And if somebody knows otherwise, it'd be cool to get a comment on that. Yeah. But let's go to what we do know. There are rules about government-funded contractors and, and defense contractors and companies that rely upon government contracts for their survival know all about this. And there are all kinds of rules around who owns the rights to the IP and who owns the IP. And if you are a defense contractor or a government contractor and you're being funded for government research and IP comes out of that, is the byproduct of it, you own the patents, right? But the government has certain rights to it depending upon how it was funded, whether it was solely funded by the government or partially or something like that. The government owns certain rights and they might even own rights to take your technology that might be your trade secreted technology 
or even your ultimately patented technology and re-procure someone, you know, the contract so they could have somebody else, one of your competitors, make the products. Yeah. But that's in government-funded situations. What I'm reading in this, the government might incentivize you to do stuff. That means they might pay you, but I doubt that there's going to be contracts associated with that, like the standard government contracts that we have. There might be, I don't know enough about it, but that's the first question I'd ask. Let me see the documents, right? Show right. me the documents that were created in connection, in connection with the relationship with you and the federal government from where they incentivized you to make these ventilators or whatever for national defense or for a national emergency. And, and those documents would define it. But if there's nothing, if there's no documents, if there's nothing in those documents that defines the rights, ownership of the IP will reside with the company that came up with the IP. It's really interesting. It's, it's a really interesting landscape. And I mean, not that I would wish this upon anyone, but uh, it would be interesting to see something like this play out in litigation, um, just because there's so many different moving pieces. And in a crisis, it's like, you know, if, if, if a company is dropping its normal business in order to produce something for the national, you know, the benefit of all of the people of, of a country, um, you would think that there would be a little bit of leeway given, you know, but, um, but, but there wonder, are laws and, and it's wonder, like, yeah. Did the people coming up with the act in 1950 or so think about that? Were they thinking about IP when they were coming up with this? I don't, I don't know. know. Probably some pretty I don't know. It's, it's, in those situations, it's tough to think beyond the crisis, right? Which I think is what, you know, that, that probably provoked the action. I think it was the Korean war or something like that. Yeah. Well, but anyway. Time, yeah. At the same time, um, IP is only becoming well known, you know, in the general public since like the mid nineties, right. you know, the mid 1990s. Before that, no one even knew what IP was except, you know, industries that are heavily IP centric, like the chemical industry and maybe the pharmaceutical industry. But IP wasn't really well known until it started to emerge as kind of a popular topic in the mid 90s when big companies like I or like Texas Instruments and IBM started getting a whole bunch of licensing revenue and it started getting people to become more aware of wow there's real power in this IP what is IP anyway you know right. so right. yeah and and now here we are recording a podcast educating the world uh, about stuff that they should know about IP well that's Thanks, right. everybody, for joining. I think this was a great conversation, really interesting topics. Um, if you agree, if you have comments, if you disagree, if you have thoughts, uh, please share them in the, in the comment box. Um, and, and always like and subscribe and, and share this with your friends. Help spread the word.